by a text from a family member. Um, we have been for about a month now um, working with Facebook Live, uh, taking the services and putting them up on Facebook um, and running them live and then having the, the sermons archived. Appreciate all of Kevin's work in helping that to happen. Um, so I just want to encourage you that if you've got friends or family uh, that you know you can encourage to look in and go to our Facebook page. If you're homesick or away, you can still join us and still worship uh, together with us and watch on Facebook. So we pray that that's a good ministry to you. Have you ever watched someone do something that seemed perhaps a little risky, a little unwise, a little foolish, and you thought to yourself, why are you doing this? Guys can relate to this almost immediately. Every guy can think of something where either he was the one doing the foolish thing or he was with a buddy who was doing the foolish thing and thinking, why are you doing this? You wives can probably relate to this too. You thought the same thing about your husband at some point. It usually involved either like a, a stepladder or a chainsaw or a combination of both. You know, why? Why does he have to do this? The passage that we begin with this morning in John chapter 4, in verse 27, has the disciples looking at Jesus Christ and going, why is he doing this? Marveling at what Jesus is doing, but not marveling just in the sense of saying, this is wonderful, marveling in the sense of, we don't understand this. This does not seem wise at this moment. It doesn't seem like what he should be doing. Jesus was not at that point Raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, causing the lame to walk. What it was that the disciples were marveling at was Jesus having a conversation, a public conversation with a woman who was Samaritan. And they were talking deeply, engaged in conversation. We are in John chapter 4. We're going to pick up in just a moment verse 27. But it's where we left off last week with this story of, as we commonly know it, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, where it is based on a conversation that Jesus initiated and carried on with this woman at a public well outside of a town in Samaria. As we saw last week, the very fact that Jesus is having this conversation breaks all sorts of rules of etiquette and ethnicity. He is, first of all, a Jewish rabbi having a public conversation with a woman to whom he is not related in any way. That's troubling in some sense to the disciples as to, to him having this, this conversation as to the appropriateness of that. She is from a people group that the Jews despised and looked down on. There wasn't much harmony there between Samaritans and Jews. And just to complicate things, the town that she's from no doubt knows this, but we also find out that Jesus knows that she has a checkered past. She has a reputation, if you will, for things that she has done. And so all of this sort of sparks concern. And yet here it is in the middle of the day, in full view of anybody who wishes to see, Jesus is engaged in a conversation about her soul. And so verse 27 of John chapter 4 says, Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? We know that the disciples had gone into town to buy food. They had been journeying, of course, from the south, from Judea, to the north, to Galilee. They had journeyed all through the morning, and so they go to get food in the town, and they come back, and here is their rabbi, deeply engaged in this conversation with this woman from the town. At best, this is unusual. At worst, this is breaking some societal norms and, and risking the reputation of their teacher. 
And so they marveled. The word means they were astonished. They were wondering about it. They were trying to figure what was happening here. And it's clear that they had questions. For whatever reason, they chose not to voice them. Perhaps they had been following Jesus enough at this point that they understood the the ethics, the person who he was, and so they didn't see it appropriate to ask these questions. But you could essentially summarize the questions to be, what are you doing and why are you doing this? Why are you engaged in this conversation? One of the disciples who was there and, and, and present at that moment is the one who has recorded this account for us, and it is John. And John is going to take us through what happens next and this conversation that goes on with the disciples from Jesus, and we are going to see that this is, this is instruction, these are lessons about sowing spiritual seed and seeing a harvest, about planting God's truth And then seeing results from that, seeing fruit come about as a result of the scattering of that seed. And I'm going to put three lessons under these headings for you as we we break this portion up this morning. Scattering seeds, sovereign increase, and salvation's harvest. Let's start with the scattering seed part. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They, the townspeople, went out of the town and were coming to him. She has been involved with Jesus in this conversation that included several phases, as we saw it last week. Jesus sort of begins by intriguing her, kind of an invitation into a conversation when she is very much at the point of not wanting to even start a conversation. Jesus intrigues her with this gift from God offer that he puts in front of her and says that she should ask for it. And then he he further elaborates that it is a gift of living water. And we saw this last week. She she misunderstood naturally because she thought, well, what does he mean? Some kind of brook, some kind of stream, fresh flowing water. When we come to understand that what Jesus is talking about is refreshment for her soul. He's talking about something that will will last for eternity and will change her life and give her satisfaction, the likes of which she has not known. He then goes on in, in the verses that we read before, and he indicts her about her sin. He brings up the mess of her past and walks through even where she is presently and talks about the relationships that she has been in and the sin that she has been engaged in, and he essentially convicts her of her sin. Jesus from there goes on and he explains to her the true nature of worshiping God. And he gives uh, just a a brief statement about those who are true worshipers of the, the living God. And with that, over the course of that conversation, we see her sort of change in understanding and attitude. When the conversation began, probably disdain, disinterest at least on her part, there is a sense that she has come out of the town in the middle of the day to get water. That's, that's what she's there for. She's not there. She didn't come out you know, for a, a deep conversation with somebody about her soul. She came for water. And so here is this Jewish rabbi now engaging in a conversation with her. And, and, and early on in the conversation, it's almost disdain her reaction. Why are you a Jew talking with me? Why, why are you even bothering with me? And she moves from there to kind of a level of curiosity where at one point in the conversation after listening to him, she, she starts to think, are, are you a prophet? Are you someone that has been sent from, from God to speak? 
all the way to the very point that we got to at the end of the story, and then you see when she goes back to the townspeople, she is actually beginning to wonder out loud if this man who is now talking to her is possibly this one that she had been told to think about, to prepare for, that is coming, this Messiah, this Christ, this anointed one sent from God. All the while, Jesus is sowing seed. He's speaking truth to her, beginning to identify himself, talking about worship, talking about sin. All of that is Jesus beginning to, to scatter sort of spiritual seed into her life, stuff that God will use to bring her to, to full faith and knowledge of Christ. He is planting truth. She then goes back to the town and in a more primitive way scatters truth herself. And she goes back to the townspeople. The irony, perhaps, is verse 28 when it says, so the woman left her water jar and went back into the town. If you remember the conversation that we read, if you've read it before, you know that getting water was her primary mission. That was what the whole conversation kept kind of turning on this point of, yeah, if you can give me water, if you can provide water for me, then great, do it. If you can save me from having to lug this water pot. And now... Here she is when the conversation has come to an end, and she doesn't even bring the water pot back with her. She leaves it there to go back to the townspeople. So something changed in terms of her priorities during the course of this conversation from, I need water because that's what I do every day at this time, and we need it, to she needs something else. And her priorities change. Leon Morris writes it this way. He says, It is an indication of the deep impression that Jesus had made upon her that she left her water pot there. She completely abandoned the business at hand. So the faith that she has at this point is in its infancy. She's, she's thinking, she's wondering, she's trying to understand who Jesus is. She's beginning to believe that, that something has happened here. And it's enough to prompt her to go back to her townspeople and, and to say to them something about this man who apparently from the text, she doesn't even know his name. You see this man, you've got to come out and see this man, and there's, there's nothing in their interaction that shows that she identified him in any way other than some kind of Jewish teacher. And so she goes back and she says, come out and see this man. And then she, perhaps it's exaggeration a bit, but I think there's a reason for it when she says, he told me everything about me. I think we look at the conversation and we go, well, he didn't really tell her everything about her. But, but what it really speaks to is the impression that Jesus had on her, particularly in the area of her sin. The, the, the fact that he engaged in this conversation and then comes toward the end and says, listen, I, I know about your relationships. I know about your sin must speak volumes to her because now what it says is not only is he seeking to, to teach or instruct in some way, but he actually knows about my life and he's still here caring for my soul. He is still here saying, I have this offer for you of living water. I have this hope for you, this, this life for you. And so when she goes back and says, he told me all that I did, really what it speaks to is the, the dramatic impression that it made on her that Jesus knew who she was, as some of those townspeople did, and probably ostracized her. And Jesus, knowing who she was, spoke to her and, and, and cared for her and sought to minister to her and to give her hope. And so she goes back to the town with this really simple invitation. Come, see a man who told me, all that I ever did, 
Can this be the Christ? I want to submit to you that this is a profound lesson for any of us who have ever said, I can't evangelize, I can't witness because I don't know what to say. I wouldn't know what to say. I don't have all the answers. I, I, I don't have a four-point outline. You know, I, I just, I'm afraid to open my mouth because I just don't know what to say. She, of all people, did not know what to say in terms of having a wealth of knowledge. She couldn't even identify by name who it was that she was encouraging them to come and see. What she had, though, was God at work in her heart changing her life, and she was very aware of the fact that there's something here in this one, there is something about this man that you should come and see as well. There's something unique happening here. The people of the town probably had reason to know about her life. It was undoubtedly not a secret, the relationships that she had. And yet here she is, freely, without shame, saying to the townspeople, I met this guy who knows everything about my life, and I think that maybe he's the Messiah. That's kind of an interesting invitation to people who know her, that she, that, that she would publicly say, he knows everything about me, and I want you to meet him. I want you to know who he is. Uh, she's not trying to be an evangelist. She's simply inviting them to meet a remarkable man that she had just encountered. She didn't have all the answers. She didn't have a gospel presentation. She merely said, you should meet Jesus. It is the most basic of personal testimonies, but it is one that any one of us who is trusting in Jesus Christ can begin with. If we are transformed by him, if he has changed your life in some way, and, and, and if you are a believer, then, then scripture says you are a new creature in Christ. The old is made new. All things have passed away, and you are made new now in Christ. Then you have that. Then you have the simplicity of a life that has changed, and you have a Savior who did that. And, and that's the very base point at which we all can invite anyone to say, listen, there's this book, it's called the Gospel of John, it's part of the Bible. It, it tells you all about Jesus. It tells you about his life and the things he taught. And, and I've, I've encountered Jesus. Jesus has changed my life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we, we can all start right there at, at the simplest of levels in, in encouraging people to come and meet Jesus. So she does that. And at the end of verse 30, it, it says that the people from the town head out to go see who this is. Uh, skip ahead with me for a moment. We'll come back to the middle section, which is Jesus and his disciples talking in this interim. Look down at verse 39 for a moment. The people of the town are coming to him. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It's a remarkable picture. If the disciples were marveling back in verse 27 when they walked up and saw Jesus talking with this woman at this well, you can imagine the sense when Jesus is having a conversation with them, and all of a sudden the, the Samaritans from the town are beginning, and seems like many, a crowd of some sort, are making their way out toward Jesus. They are coming toward him. 
And, and, and they are going to watch as Jesus engages with these people, as they meet, as Jesus teaches them, as they respond in faith and worship, as they say to Jesus, stay in our town, stay here and teach us more. And he stays with them for two days. You think they were marveling at the beginning. Clearly, this, this is astonishing what is happening here. The scattering of the seed by Jesus resulted in salvation's harvest. There were some Samaritans who believed on account of simply the woman's testimony. There was something about her coming back changed and saying what she did that God used in their lives in a way that they could not explain. And some began believing this must be the Christ. We know her. We know what kind of life she's had. Something's changed, and they began to believe. Others, it says, came out, and they, they, they gathered, and they listened to Jesus teach it says many more believe. The, the comment there at the end of this in verse 42 is not derogatory when they say to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said we believe. It's, it's simply saying, we heard what you said. Now we've come and seen him for ourselves, And of course now we believe. We believe in him and they have embraced him. And it finishes there by saying, we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. That title takes on such rich meaning in this context. Because that, that title is saying that Jesus Christ saves people of every tribe and tongue and nation. That Jesus has no geographic boundaries, no ethnic boundaries. Jesus saves all kinds of people from all kinds of places in life. And, and here he is now, Jesus Christ, being presented to us early in the record of John's record of Jesus' ministry. One of the things John's doing here is early on saying, look... The Savior already from the get-go took the gospel across ethnic lines. There were no, no longer these barriers that stood in the way. There was no longer the, the worry about hostility between Jews and Samaritans. This gospel was to save people of every kind of background you could think of. The one who is the light of the world, who came to take away the sins of the world, is now described here as the Savior of the world. It's really a glorious picture and a glorious harvest Jesus Christ intentionally stepping right over and crushing what was a sharp ethnic line between two groups who had no love for each other. They tolerated each other at best, if not hated each other at worst. And here is a Jewish rabbi coming to the Samaritan people and seeing the first real harvest in the book of John in terms of large numbers now beginning to come to him in faith. And it turns out that it is this people that the Jews have despised. And it is because Jesus began to scatter seeds amongst them. That is remarkable. What's also, I think, helpful for us to recognize as we read this story is just the power of Jesus' words. This is one of those stories that doesn't have a real dramatic miracle per se. There is his omniscient recognition of the woman's past, even that if you want it to be purely secular, I guess, if you could, and I'm not suggesting this is the answer because Jesus was able to rely on his knowledge to, to given to him by God to say this, but you could be purely secular and say, well, that kind of information about her life was probably fairly widely known. My, my point in saying that is this was not some grand, flashy sort of miracle. What draws these people to faith are the words of Jesus. It is the power that is inherent in the spoken word of Jesus Christ. It is the power that is inherent in saying, I know that you are lost in sin and in need of hope, and I have come to bring you salvation. 
I have come to offer you rescue and life and satisfaction. Romans 1.16 says, The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is powerful to save people, to bring people to a knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and to transform their lives, just as, as Jesus uses it here to save these Samaritan souls. Martin Luther, the reformer, when he was near the end of his ministry, came back to Wittenberg. And one of the things that was happening in Wittenberg near the end of his life was there that one of the governing officials with whom um, Luther had been friendly um, had started this collection of something that the church called relics. They were little objects that were believed to have come from the Holy Land in some way, come from Israel, and believed to have been touched or used in some way by someone in the Bible. And so they were, you know, like little goodies that you could say, oh, this was, this was related to so-and-so in the Bible. And, and the story goes that by 1518 in Wittenberg, there was an estimated more than 17,000 items that were there. And, and the, the ruler that, that Luther knew who was doing this largely saw it as a marvelous tourism effort because, you know, if you've got the largest collection of relics, then people from all over the, the church-going world will come to Wittenberg so that they can see little slivers of the cross or what was purported to be a pair of pants from Joseph or uh, hair from a beard of John the Baptist. There were no authenticity certificates to go with any of these things. Most of them probably were not what they were said to be. But the objects then were used by the church and defined then as indulgences. So you come to our town and you, you buy one of these slivers and, and that'll buy you favor with God. You give and you donate and, and you, you've earned God's favor in some way, supposedly. In Luther's last sermon, he pleaded with people to not, quote, go there and squander your money to buy indulgences and the Pope's secondhand junk. That was Luther's way of saying, there is no power in these things. Even if they were legitimately somehow historically accurate, there's still no power in them. They're just inanimate objects. They're junk. Don't waste your time on them. The power of God is in the message of the gospel. It is in the life-giving truth that transforms people. It is in the, the, the fact of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ applied by God's Spirit to people's lives, bringing them to salvation. It is in that hope of, of freedom and forgiveness and salvation that the power lies. Lives are changed from the preaching of the gospel. Lives are changed powerfully by the simplicity of our own testimony of the power of the gospel in our own lives. And that is clear here in Samaria. Jesus goes to a town that ordinarily would have been at minimum cool to him, at best would not have given him the time of day, much as she was prepared not to at the beginning of their conversation. Why are you talking to me? And Jesus goes to this town, and by virtue of what he says, something, the work of God breaks out in a way that is dramatic, and people respond to his truth, and they are saved. It's a remarkable testimony to what God does in the hearts of people when the seeds of God's truth are scattered, when people are told of the truth of Jesus Christ. His truth is faithfully scattered, and God does this work. And that is really what the heart of the, the center of this passage is about. So between the woman going and telling the townspeople, hey, you, you've got to come check this guy out, to the, the coming of the people to Jesus, 
we have this conversation that goes on, starting in verse 31, between the disciples and Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Stop there a minute. This is kind of ironic, if you remember the story from last week, that when he said, I would offer you water that would be like welling up to eternal life, and, and immediately the woman thinks, great, if you can give me water that saves me from carrying this bucket back and forth every day, I will take it. Here Jesus now brings up the subject of food, and I have food that you don't know, and immediately the disciples are like, who, who brought him food? Because that was our job, right? And, and so immediately the, the loss of, of what's going on here and what Jesus is trying to, to teach them begins. You know, you just see, just as, as you and I are most of the time, you know, just that sense of, huh, what, what's going on here? Here are the disciples preoccupied with the food that they had just gone and run for him. And Jesus is teaching an emphatic lesson. And he's saying, I have food that you do not know about. I have food that is the most satisfying of all. Jesus, even as they are speaking, even as Jesus is not putting food in his mouth, Jesus is saying, I have the most satisfying experience that I can possibly have. And you know what that is? It is doing the will of the Father. It is, it is being at a place in life where I believe I understand what God's will is for me to do and fulfilling that will. That is more energizing, more joy-giving, more satisfying than any meal that I could, could possibly find. This is not about material food. This is about the satisfaction that comes in one's soul from doing the will of God. When he, in, in verse 34, when he says, it's my food's to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The Greek word there for accomplish means to fulfill or complete. It is a form of the same word that Jesus cried out from the cross when he said, it is what? Finished. And so what John is recording for us here is Jesus earlier in his ministry saying, I am about the work of, of accomplishing, of completing the work that God has given me to do, work that ultimately will be completed on Calvary when he shouts out, it is finished. Leon Morris again helpfully writes this, there is a sense in which each stage of Jesus' work may be regarded as perfect and complete, and there is a deeper sense in which nothing is complete without the cross when ultimately it will be accomplished. And yet all that he's accomplishing along the way is perfect and each stage along the way is, is absolutely complete as Jesus performs it. So verse 35. He's trying to help the disciples see what's going on here. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap, to harvest that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. We've seen right from the start how the words of Jesus Christ are like seed that is scattered. He, he is putting truth into people's lives. He is planting it in their being. And, and then what we saw by looking ahead at the end 
is that that seed scattered into this woman's life, then she scatters it into the townspeople's lives, and then they come and hear Jesus, and suddenly there is this harvest. There, is people, there are people coming to faith in Christ. The, the, the small bits of truth that have been planted in their lives are now yielding fruit. And, and so something is happening here. Something that the disciples are not fully understanding at this point. And that's what Jesus is explaining to them. In between the scattered seed and salvation's harvest is the sovereign increase. In between the scattering of the seed and the the rising to new life, the people who come to life and who believe in Jesus, is the work of God that saves souls. It is the work of God that takes that seed and makes it to grow and come to life and change people. There's some speculation amongst commentators when you look at uh, verse 35 and, and Jesus says, you, you've heard it said, there's yet four months and then comes the harvest. As to whether or not that was kind of a proverbial phrase, it's not found in other writings, um, but whether or not it was kind of a phrase that said, you know, obviously people say you plant, you harvest roughly four months or so take place, or in fact, if the timing when Jesus was saying this was four months from the harvest, either way, his, his bigger point right here is to say, you expect the harvest to take time. You understand that planting and harvesting, there's always a, a season in between of watering and cultivating and waiting and, and hoping and wondering. And what he says here is, I'm telling you that right now, in this moment, God is doing the work of harvesting. You are, you are going to see something before your eyes that takes the sowing and the harvesting and just sort of compresses them together, and you will see a dramatic harvest and rejoice about it. Forget about four months. What Jesus has done here in just moments, God is bringing to fruit. And then he emphatically says to them, look, lift up your eyes. The fields are already ripe for harvest. It is not a stretch at this point to imagine that they at the well outside of town, that Jesus is now pointing their attention to the crowd that is beginning to come out of Samaria. It doesn't say it in the text, but I, I think we already have it from verse 30 that they are already coming to him. And so it would not be a surprise if part of what Jesus is saying as they are beginning to look and wonder where this crowd is going and why they're coming this way and whether or not Jesus has just violated all societal customs and they're really angry. Here's Jesus saying, look, this harvest, watch. This harvest, what you see right here is ripe. It is ready, emphatically telling them to direct their eyes to what he is about to do. Look and see the harvest. When it comes to growing things, there's really no way to significantly speed up the process. You know, we, we buy seedlings, we buy, you know, plants that have already got kind of a head start down at Home Depot or Lowe's so that at least it sort of helps we don't just plant tomato seeds. Some of you are diligent enough to do that. Some of us go and look for the ones that are furthest along because we're impatient and we don't want to wait. But you still got to wait. I mean, it's still going to take time for that plant to get sun and get water and grow and someday... You hope there will actually be tomatoes on there. There will actually be fruit to bear. What, what Jesus is saying here is God's saving of souls works at a whole different pace, works at God's design and in his timing and in his day. And there may be times when there is a long season between sowing and reaping, and there may be times when that harvest seems to come almost instantly, miraculously and dramatically. And that's what he's saying here. There is an urgency in this. There is an urgency in the proclamation of the gospel that, that you and I should get out of this passage, an urgency in wanting to plant seeds 
to be a part of the, the sowers and the reapers who are rejoicing together. The fact that the fields are white for harvest is, is intending to tell us that God already has people out there who are ready to receive the truth of the gospel and respond in faith. That's what gives us hope. We're not, we're not salespeople out trying to, to try out our best technique, and when somebody doesn't believe, we go, ah, I must have said something wrong, I must have messed up in some way. It, no, we're simply proclaiming truth, and then we're resting in the sovereign hand of God to bring about the increase, because he is the one that does that. He is the one that gives life. And, and he's already telling us here, Jesus is saying, there is a harvest out there. Go out. Just go out after it. And, and go out and proclaim and trust that God has people that he is already bringing to himself. And he will give you a, a part in the celebration of sowing and reaping that goes on in there. And he'll do the sovereign work. Uh, up until this point, in, at least historically for these people, the, probably the most prominent preacher that, that people were aware of, at least at that time, was probably John the Baptist in terms of somebody who had come and preached repentance of sin and the coming of the Messiah. John the Baptist is the one who went before and said, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was scattering seed, just as Jesus was scattering seed, just as prophets back in the Old Testament had been doing centuries before when they promised a coming Savior who would free his people, save his people from their sins. All of that was, was scattering, planting, preparing. And now Jesus says, now we rejoice because now the harvest comes and we see these lost sinners come to faith in Jesus Christ. Great example of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Remember where Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church and rebuking them about the fact that they have divided up into sort of preaching fan clubs. We belong to Peter we belong to Paul. We belong to Apollos. That's who, who our allegiance is pledged to. We want that preacher. We don't, we, we don't want the other preachers. And, and God rebukes that through the Apostle Paul and, and says this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. There is God's word saying, it is, it's a joy to be a laborer. Don't, don't misunderstand that passage. That's why Paul spent the, the rest of his years in and out of prison and, and facing all that he faced, because there is joy in being a, a planter and a harvester, but ultimately there's got to be an understanding that it's planting, it's watering, but it's, it's up to God. It's up to God to give the growth. It's up to God to give the increase. And he is the one that we trust. And therein lies the lesson that I think is similar to what, what Jesus is teaching the disciples here in John 4. As believers in Jesus Christ, we're, we're called to be faithful to what he's called us to do. We're called to, to seek out his will as it's revealed to us in Scripture and, and to, as best we can, line ourselves up with it and live in it and enjoy it and, and be faithful to what he's called us to do, to be faithful, to proclaim the gospel, to be faithful if it's only the simplest of testimonies that we're able to give of this Savior who, who changed our lives, and then to trust God to increase, trust God to bear fruit. God takes seed that is faithfully sown by ordinary people just like you and I, 
and grows it into fruit that, as he describes here in verse 36, gathering fruit for eternal life. You and I, when we are engaged in, in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, are involved in work that matters for eternity. Planting seeds that God can and will harvest to save people for their, for their eternal being. If, if you've ever shared the gospel and you felt like, man, I, you know, this is, this is humanly speaking, I nailed it, you know? I got all my points in, they asked some good questions, that was clear, and then you get all done, the person goes, okay, thanks, I'm glad you believe that, I don't. It's like, wait, and then somebody else comes along and, and, and maybe years later that same person and says hardly anything, and somehow God uses that and brings that person to say, you know what, I believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. Humanly, we kind of go, oh, man, how come I didn't get in on that? His, his point here to the disciples is, listen, you are coming alongside a situation here that you didn't sow, you didn't, you, you didn't scatter seed in this one, you haven't labored even yet, and yet, by God's grace, rejoice. Because the sower and the reaper together are celebrating the work of God. That God in his good timing and by his good grace has brought someone to faith in Christ. The heart attitude ultimately that you and I are called back to is exactly what Jesus described in verse 34 when he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I mean, that's, that's where we're called to live, really, if we're going to follow after Jesus Christ is to say, I, I just I want to be content in the will of God. Because here's Jesus, again, circumstances. Remember the circumstances. Walked all morning going from Judea toward Galilee, tired, thirsty, hungry, all of those circumstances that you and I judge to be not exactly ideal. And he is saying to the disciples, I am so satisfied right now because I'm, I'm doing what God wants me to do. I'm satisfied in that. Doing the will of his father was more satisfying than anything else. I don't know about any of you, um, but, but when I do physical labor, which admittedly isn't, isn't often, um, we, we split some logs about a week ago, and even when we split logs, we used a machine, um, and I had my sons, who did most of the lifting. Um, but, but still, it was, you know, it was hard work. Um, at, at the end of that... When you, you've been at it for hours, you're tired. And I don't know about you, but at the end of that, all I, all I want is I want a shower, I want food, and I want the couch. Preferably the food and the couch together. And that's about it. And I am, I am done. I am spent and I am satisfied at that point. And, and none of those is sinful. Those, those are all appropriate things. God gave us work to do, to till the ground. God, God gave us work to do to pay our bills, and, and, and we have hunger, and, and we, we grow weary. That's the way that God has made our bodies. But how, how similarly motivated are you taking that, that drive to, to do the job, to finish the job, to sense that satisfaction and that sense of accomplishment? How similarly motivated are you when it comes to the souls of being your children, the people around you, your colleagues at work, your neighbors, your friends, how similarly impassioned are you to be engaged in that sort of work of, of ministry, of, of even on the simplest level, sharing a testimony of the work that Christ has done in your life. David in Psalm 
40, verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O my God. David says, my passion, my my commitment, my zeal is, is most stirred when I am doing what you desire for me to do. When I have seen in Scripture what you have called me to do, and I am about that business. And, and, and the beauty of this is, is that what God has called us to do, he has similarly equipped us to do. He has given us his word. We have his truth. We have a spirit who dwells in us. We have power that only he gives. We have grace to minister. And the best part of all is that the, the person that we are perhaps working with or talking to, scattering seed to, God is the one who's working in their heart. God is the one who's going to accomplish his purposes in their lives. And we are called to scatter and, frankly, then to rest and rejoice. Not be anxious, not wonder if we said it exactly right. It's okay to think about how we share the gospel and, and, and learn and grow from that, but ultimately to be faithful about proclaiming the gospel and then to rest and rejoice in the work of God who works in the hearts of the sowers and the reapers. Our job description is marvelously straightforward. It's not an impossible ministry, uh, mystery of any kind. Just scatter the seed. Be faithful. Tell others the truth of what God has done in your life through Jesus Christ. Listen, if, if the bearing of a harvest of eternal fruit rested and relied upon our skill and eloquence, none of us would be here this morning. None of us would be worshipers of God if it rested on our eloquence and skill because none of us is perfect. None of us would get it just right. None of us, more importantly, none of us are able to to bring the dead to life. None of us are able to take the blindness away from somebody who is lost. We wish we could. You, You can all think of loved ones and people that are in your life that you care for dearly that you just somehow wish you could just grab their heart in some way, and cause them to believe. We can't. Because the reality of Scripture is that those who are apart from Christ are dead in sin, lost in sin, enslaved to sin, blind in sin. And God says, but you know what? I'm using you to be a sower in their life. I want you to go and just scatter seed. Talk to them about Jesus. Tell them about his grace and about what he's done. And then let me do the the raising of the dead and the sight to the blind and the freeing of the slaves. Trust me to do that and rejoice when you see him at work. In the end, when we've been faithful to take even the simplest of gospel calls and urge people to consider Jesus, we can rejoice together, planters and harvesters, because we belong to the living God who is able to raise even the dead. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you grateful for the work that you've done in our lives. Those here who are trusting in in, in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, each one could give a testimony that that might vary in details from that Samaritan woman, but each one of us, you, you know our hearts well enough to know that we our sin and the guilt and the shame and the mess, and that somehow you... You overcame that and loved us enough to send someone into our lives, maybe with a verse, maybe with the word of God, with some testimony, and use that to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for saving. Thank you for giving life. And Father, I pray that this morning 
whether it be in a children's class upstairs or in a preschool class down here, that, Lord, you would be taking the, the seeds of your truth and planting them in those young lives, and that you would be causing those seeds to, to begin to take root and even come to life. Father, I pray that if there's anyone in here this morning or, or even watching us on Facebook that is not trusting Jesus Christ as Savior, that today might be the day when in your grace and power you would take the truth as it's been put forth and you would call them to believe in a Savior who gave his life as a ransom for sinners, just like each here. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you for the power of the gospel. Lord, help us this week to seek out opportunities. Even at this time of year when, when people might be somewhat curious, maybe more than normal about Jesus or how it bears on Christmas or whatever it might be, help us to be at least faithful, to seize those opportunities, to exhort people to consider this man. Consider this man who, who knowing the mess of my life, has transformed it, who has saved me. Lord, we pray that you would bear fruit, that through the lives of the people of Grace Bible Church, that you would bear fruit unto eternal life, that you would grant to more and more people through the witness of your people here the, the joy that comes from refreshment at springs of living water, that which we have experienced, might we be faithful to take to others. We ask this all Jesus' name, in the name of the Savior of the world, we pray. Amen.